This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Today, the stark images of goth offer a series of easily identifiable tropes ripe for the mainstream to employ without ever needing to acknowledge their roots. The seeds sown in that post-punk period have sprouted so much creative DNA that it's almost impossible to gauge who or what fits into the genre now. That dark energy is everywhere. Those are the words of my guest today from his latest book, The Art of Darkness, The History of Goth. He's a journalist and author whose books include punk rock and oral history. He created the environmental education scheme Green Britain Academy. He runs the Louder Than War music website and the Louder Than Words Lit Festival. But he is, I think, first and foremost, a musician, best known as a founding member of The Membranes. Welcome to the bunker, John Robb. All right, Alex. John, let's start with basics. Why this book and why now? Well, actually, it was about 12 years ago when I started it. <laughs> and then it was an uphill struggle because I went around London to all the publishers and nobody was interested in doing a goth book. So it took me a few years to find a publisher. Mm. So I started writing it anyway. But I think I think it was a, it was a misunderstood scene and, and an overlooked scene. So I mean, even though it's some of the bands who were from that scene or were really massively popular. Nobody mm. ever understood the culture, and people have a very cliched idea of the culture as well, didn't they? So I thought it, was, it deserved an unpack. There'd been academic books about it before, yeah, you know, but they're very dry. You know, academic books have their purpose, of course. But I thought it's time for a pop culture book, a book you could read, even if you didn't really know much about that culture, or even if you didn't think you liked it. Mm. A book written by somebody actually was enthusiastic about culture, like that culture, but very detailed as well. You know, and I think the detail is important. The excerpt I chose at the beginning shows there's a sort of, I, I felt a sort of annoyance peppered through the book at goth being constantly defined from the outside in very simple terms. Is this an attempt to sort of reclaim its complexity and just put it in context? I think you've already got the answer there. I think that's very astute, actually. I think... Um... I think probably like a lot of music scenes, I think people, they always end up being defined by people who are not in the scene, don't they? And then the cliches are put on people's shoulders by people who aren't part of the scene either. Mm. And, and there is a complexity, there's a complexity to all the music scenes, but especially in goth, I think, of all the music cultures that coalesce, probably in the UK, mm. it is the most complex, you know. I'm probably the most intellectual because as somebody says in the book, goth read books. <laughs> you know, in punk, in the punk period in the late 70s, nobody read books, not because it was stupid, because they had no time. Everybody was off their heads, but <laughs> two years later, everyone's a little older and sort of like reading and doing the backstories of things. So it's a goth are very much aware there's, there's a lineage to this, and, and the book is about that as well. You know, there's centuries and centuries of people embracing the dark side, the centuries of every generation dealing with its blues, whatever contemporary art and culture is to hand. So in the 18th century, you wouldn't form a band. Well, you could form a band, yeah. It'd be like a folk band, and there's lots of great dark folk. If only you could hear that music, but mm. you can't now. At that time, you'd be writing poems, or you'd be writing books, or you'd be Lord Byron, or you'd be, you know, mad, bad, and dangerous to know. And all 
it's always been there every century, but in the late 70s, early 80s, the ways to express that uh, melancholy and those great themes of life, sex and death was in music. So, yeah. And there's a little gap, a little space for it to be done there. And so do you think it's that, the love of the darkness of humanity that you can see in Gothic architecture, in literature, in all of those things that draws a line directly, that ties it directly to what we refer as goth in the late 70s and 80s. I think I think very strongly there's that line. And I think, um, I mean, it's always a fascination with Malacolony, it's always a fascination with death. These are the big themes in life, mm. aren't they? A lot of way, and in England, we always talk about, you know, the fascination of Malacolony because of the weather. Ironically, goth's big everywhere where it's really sunny. So <laughs> <laughs> I think we, I mean, like... Well, maybe I, that's why we need it, you know, because I mean, it feels like rebelling even against I the... I think it's part of the human psyche. Yeah. You could be two things at once. You could feel really up and really down. You could be a really gloriously sunny day and you still feel melancholic, you know. Yeah. I mean, I wrote about it in the book. I mean, I wrote about, you know, the Greeks, your, your lot in the book, you know, like uh, the Greek plays are really dark, mm. you know, the Greek gods. And also Pan and people like that. I wrote about that because all that thing that, you know, the embrace of nature, that's theme that runs through everything mm. as well. Mm. Just, I think it's a brace of everything and being fascinated in lots of different little things. It's all in there, that music, and it? it's not, it's not just sex and death, but they're pretty, they're two kind of pillars to it. Okay, so <laughs> interesting question. What is goth then? Because if I'm honest with you, 500 plus pages later, I'm still not sure, and I don't think <laughs> you're sure either. The one connecting strand is that almost everybody in your many, many interviews that is labelled as goth wants nothing to do with that <laughs> description. Why is that? I totally understand. I think it makes sense. All the women, and probably half the men in the clubs, were dressed like Susie Sue. And she was a whole new kind of rock star. No, there'd been nothing like Susie before. There's, you know, there's obviously Jim Morrison's in the equation a bit, and Iggy's a bit there, you know, mm. Bowie's in there a bit. But Susie was a, was a new template, really. But their first gig was September 1976. There was no such thing as goth then. I mean, they were playing the, the Sex Pistols 100 Club Festival, yeah. did a 20-minute jam, they weren't even really punk, you know, they're their own definition of punk, but they're, they were indefinable. And I think a lot of the people in this book are very unique people who operate in a very unique way. They're not part of anything. I understand why they don't want to be lumped in something called goth, but what they have to cope with is the fact there is a commonality, is the audience is all goth. Yeah, yeah. You know, they, and also I think a lot of time people use the word goth not to imprison in, in them. I and mean, yes, you get seen police to go, right. Susie, why, why are you wearing a blue shirt? You're meant to wear black. Or you'll get people like that, won't you? And you can see why people think, oh, God, I can't be arsed even dealing with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, most people just use the word goth as, as a quick, you know, if I had to say to you, I've written a book, and you go, what it's about? And I've, we've got three seconds at bus stop. I say it's about goth. I don't have yeah, yeah. Uh, 10 hours to recite the whole book to you to explain it and unpack it. And I like the idea. I like the way you can have something that's a scene, but it's a loose coalition of sometimes like-minded people or sometimes people who are not like-minded at all, at all you know. At all, yeah. And people also arriving at the same sort of destination at roughly the same time, totally unaware of each other. So I have, I'm sure Bauhaus in Northampton had no idea the sisters were doing Leeds when they yeah. were all starting. You know, I don't think they were all like going... Or Joy going, Division or... I think Joy Division because Peel was playing them a lot. So people were... And Joy Division, mm. even though they're not strictly a goth band, are massively influential on the goth scene mm. and won the first bands to be called gothic as well. Mm. 
the sound of um, the themes, it's all over the scene, isn't it? The fingerprints are everywhere, aren't they? Yeah, Peter Hooks in his Peter Hooks in his day will tell you he's a, he was in a goth band. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that you can describe some things. It's it's easier to describe some some things as gothic rather than goth. Everybody goth likes... seems to somehow truncate it into a label, but gothic is a description of the sort of breadth and the operatic nature of, mm. of bands like that. People prefer that. I mean, mm. I interviewed Steve Seven for the book, and he said um, he prefers to think of them as being gothic than goth with two Fs, which kind of answers <laughs> your question, doesn't it? Because they were pretentious. The pretentiousness of it is what's brilliant about it. It's pretending to be something beyond, you know. It's not reflecting reality in a very dour way. It's creating great art, and you could say... You know, the Banshees are the equivalent of a cathedral or a romantic poet. I mean, why not? Just, sometimes we always look in our pop culture and try and do it down a little bit, innit? Like we're a bit embarrassed. Yeah, it's yeah. not art. It's only rock and roll, innit? And only rock and roll could be brilliant. You know, really simplistic, you know, three-chord rock and roll could be the greatest thing in the world. But sometimes it's great to build a towering edifice upon that, innit? Which is what the Banshees did. And often the Banshees could do that in two chords. And it wasn't even three chords. They could make very simplistic music that was very powerful, on lots of different kind of themes in a completely original way. Mm. I mean, like many people, I had my brush with goth in my youth. And I remember that a lot of people used to take the piss out of me. And I would smile quite knowingly because what they didn't get was that I was taking the piss out of myself already. That was the whole point. And I think Everyone thinks it is a display of how seriously you take yourself. But, but for me, it was the exact opposite. And it's so interesting to read so many interviews in your book that reflect that. Do you think the mainstream is yet to come to grips with how self-satirizing a lot of it was? How non-seriously they took the clothes and the makeup, you know, how it was? It I, was I think it was both at the same time. Yeah. It was completely serious, but people understood the humour of it. People would laugh at themselves and send themselves up, but they'd also be very serious about what they were doing, you know. So I, I, I don't think it's difficult to hold two completely different opinions at the same time. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think everybody's that sort of mono, monochromatic, are they, or simplistic? There are, there it's are very lot. appropriate for golf. You know, yeah, isn't it? There's a lot of different... I mean, you went to a golf club, and they weren't even called golf clubs about 82, 83, but you went to what was then called Alternative Club, late 70s, early 80s, and they, it was really good fun. It was quite decadent, you know. It was, Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, yeah. Sense, it, was, it was. Quite fluid, you know, sexually, drugs, music. It was anything went in those kind of spaces, in places where nothing went before. It's a place like Wakefield or Northampton or Hull, where there hadn't been a space to express yourself, mm. something there was, even if it's like a Monday night, like because nobody else wanted a club. It's always on a Monday night, wasn't it? Because you could always, because nobody wanted it. <laughs> That's so true. They always gave you the club because it's free. So my friends used to run a, cl a golf club in Sheffield on a Monday night because because they, they just took the bar takings to people around the place because nobody wanted a Monday. But that became the fulcrum of the scene, the whole of that scene in that town. And when you went to those clubs, that's... They were the key, I think the dance floor in the golf clubs was the key influence. So that's where some of the coolest mm. people you ever saw, the most amazing clothes, were in Hull, were in Wakefield, yeah. were in Sheffield. They were on top of the pops. And I think this is another reason that it's been kind of sidelined in the culture narrative because it wasn't from here. It wasn't around here. It wasn't in London. There was a scene in London, of course, the back case of Portland, but it wasn't part of the music uh, narrative and the culture that was going on. It actually happened without anybody's permission. 
which I love. I love it when people make their own culture up. And actually, that's very interesting because you talk a lot about how much of what we now consider the goth uniform was actually sort of born out of necessity. How clothes from a charity shop are easier to dye black and rip and look good and adding studs to stuff was a good DIY project for making plain things glamorous and talcum powder is cheaper than real makeup. And how the look then became a sort of commercial opportunity. And it was really through this stuff then being available en masse in shops that the scene suddenly expanded. It was almost like the music created the fashion and then the fashion created a bigger audience in a strange way. I mean, in that way, is goth weirdly a sort of 80s capitalism success story? Well, isn't that the dichotomy inherent in the heart of all alternative culture, isn't it? It's kind of anti-capitalism playing totally within the rules of capitalism, isn't it? <laughs> it's kind of capitalism at its most, almost at its most extreme, isn't it? Because mm. it's you're kind of creating stuff for people that didn't need it before, which is capitalism, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> but at the same time, you're also creating space for great ideas as well and you, and also empowering people as well and creating, as the Virgin Prunes put it, a strange kind of beauty as well, you know, it's... And also, if you look at a band like the Virgin Prunes, you know, and they came out of a very suffocating 76, 77 Dublin and walking around Dublin with a dress on and makeup in 77, I would argue to this day, totally changed Ireland into the very forward-thinking country that it is now. You know, I think that sometimes the, the knock-on effects of somebody just saying no mm. or somebody just putting some eyeliner on and walking down the street can be a powerful thing. People don't follow like the Pied Piper, but people get so shocked, it jolts them out of their day-to-day -day reality. It sounds weird saying that now because that stuff goes on everywhere But the time. I mean, I remember walking around Blackpool in the late 70s, early 80s, you just get beaten up, you know, for being slightly mm. different looking. I mean, I think a lot of people my age had that experience, you know. But I think it's a place like Dublin, it's even worse, you know. And they, like Gavin Friday from the singer, one of the singers of the Virgin Prune, said he would get the boat, the, the ferry to Liverpool every week and buy everyone's punk singles. They give him all the money, he'd go and buy the singles and bring them back to Dublin. I mean, this is how remote the culture was at the time. And you know the whole backstory, Gavin, you know, that's the, they created this little imaginary village called the Lipton Village, which is basically them and you too, in this imaginary village of freaks walking around Dublin. One band in the village became the biggest band in the world, and the other band ended up being this really amazing art rock band mm. called Virgin Prunes. And Gavin works with you two to this day. He's their art director. So when I, I did a thing with him in Dublin for the book, and I, when I was interviewing, I was thinking, oh, I want to talk to each other, actually. And I was saying, uh, it just occurred to me that, you know, when you 2 went quite wacky around Pop and Zuropa in that period, he'd actually turned U2 into the Virgin Prunes. So the Virgin Prunes did end up being the biggest <laughs> band in the world, but with different people in it, which would be very artfully, completely brilliant, wouldn't it? But they came from the same roots. They're all Bowie kids, Ziggy kids. Yeah, yeah. That, that's true. There is a line through that. Oh, there's a line. Like the peacocking and the, the complexity. What's what we do The grandness of we dress up. I mean, I mean, it's not always immediately obvious, but there's a dandyism to British culture. Yeah. I mean, often you walk around... British cities, and you won't see anybody super dressed up. But every now and then, you'll see somebody's bridge. You know, it's all there was always about the suits. You know, the dandies, the peacocks, is the core of all British pop culture for the mods, the punks. Punk originally was about dressing up, not dressing down. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. 
Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Punk also had, in my mind, a really central political message. Did Goth have a sort of overriding political message? Did Punk? I don't know. In my mind, it does. But that's sort of looking at it retrospectively and saying that there was a... There was a strand of anarchism to it that was saying, fuck the system, whatever, you know, and that was It's all in there. Present. It's in there, but it's not everywhere. Mm. It's, it's an explosion of ideas. Punk's explosion of question marks. Mm. And you had to come up with the answer yourself, which, yes, is, you which say is very that political. Book, which I, I, yeah, I, I love that. You know, as a 16-year-old kid, you have to work it out. You know, nobody's saying, here's the manifesto, go and do it. It's even better when everyone's <laughs> going, this, this and this. You have to go, I've got to, I've got to work this out myself. In the middle of nowhere is how we get all these little scenes afterwards. The same Bauhaus went through the same process. They're only a year older than me. They went through the same process in Northampton. You know, people were challenged by punk and you had to come up with a solution that was your solution. That's political. It was never party political, was it? I think I think a lot of the media kind of put it, sort of glued a narrative onto punk afterwards, which possibly wasn't there in the first place, you know. Mm. And I know The Clash, had, you know, brilliantly had, like, you know, socialist leanings, like you've got your bad socialist shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> which, in a way, we all, we're all bad socialists, aren't we? We're all, we're all trying to be... I prefer the term humorous in a sense. You're looking after each other. We, we like the idea of looking after each other, but we're also quite human at the same yeah. time, aren't we? So, but the pistols uh, politics is completely different, isn't it? The, the pistol, when the pistols sing about anarchy, they're not singing about anarchy as the Greek word, isn't it? So yeah. it's, it's even doesn't have the original meaning of the word anarchy isn't even the final meaning of it. But they're not laying out a manifesto. To me, the, the pistols anarchy was that moment of life when you're 17 years old and you have no responsibilities at all. Music is so all-consuming that you can go out for four days and sleep on the beach, not yeah. even sleep, just walk around for four days, do loads and loads of mad stuff, take loads of mad drugs, and nothing, and it doesn't affect you at all. That's the that's kind of what they're saying, that completely obliterating, perfect pop culture moment that a lot of people experience when you feel like you're going to live forever, like Oasis yeah. once yeah. sang. It's the most beautiful moment, and it's also the most defining moment in any pop culture. And I would say that's a very, very political statement as well, without being party political. Yeah. No, I, I, I see that. So, but, but so in a sense, so anyway, give us the question. So so Goth kind of picks up on that as well. So it's not like it's not like the bands are directly political, but it's capturing that moment, that moment of freedom, that moment of possibility, this, the otherness of it. So it's not a political party, it's not a political manifesto, although there are political people in Goth yeah, as well. of course. Andrew Eldritch is very left-wing, mm. you know, and some of his songs, I mean, they're quite ob- obtuse what he's singing about, but they do have very left-wing kind of themes in them. Mm. And also that fluidity as well, you know. So, you know, I wrote about it in the book, and this will seem so tame nowadays, but when the girls used to go in the boys' toilets and the boys went in the girls' toilets at these northern clubs, it was like, whoa, it there's was, girls in the boys' toilets. Revo- an act of revolution. It was, it was, because yeah. that never happened before, because the clubs used to be so staid. It'd just be, the, the girls would dance around handbags and the blokes would stand in a circle with the pints, iron up the birds, oh, she's all right. That's what it was like. It was still 
like that. And that's I mean, right. Look, yeah. and considering the debates going on at the moment around, you know, toilet spaces, I, I would argue is probably still an act of revolution in many ways. Yes. And, and one of the, actually, one of the joys of being in a gay club is that you see the women coming to the men's toilets if the women's toilets are really busy because they don't and feel, giggling about it and feeling very feel safe pressure, and, yeah. and loving it actually well weirdly i mean the primitive version of that is it when a lot of towns i like where i grew in blackpool and other towns was the only safe space for young men into like punk and post-punk and goth was the gay clubs hmm. so you would go to a gay club or a gay bar not not because you were gay, just because it was everyone left you alone. Yeah, yeah. People people know you were straight. They wouldn't try and pick you up, but they would they would like they would like the idea that the weirdos would come and hang hang out because we we're all weirdos in our own little way, in in the coolest way. And I say weirdo as the most positive statement. Straight is an insult. Weirdo is a compliment. And it was a space where everybody who's different could go, and it was a safe space. And that was what's brilliant about it. And a lot of that culture and, and a lot of the gay culture actually crossed over into punk, didn't yeah. it? And there's some of the yeah, gay yeah, styles yeah. crossed over into punk and, and then, by extension, into goth. I also found, especially in the early chapters of the book, there's a huge, oh, man, I wish you could have been there energy to what you write and that it was almost impossible to read without long breaks during which I got lost on Spotify or YouTube <laughs> just reminding myself of the songs and the bands or discovering new things that I didn't even know at the time. Is that something you aimed for, to sort of make the reader thirst for music, to make the reader put down the book and go to their records or go online? Predominantly, I'm a music fan, and a music fan or a head will turn people on to stuff, and it all day long I just say to people, you heard this, check this out, and people... I was just doing a book tour of Ireland and people telling me this amazing scene of young bands in Ireland coming through that people don't even know about yet. They've done about four gigs and everywhere I went, people were just telling me stuff and I was writing it down on my phone. I've been checking them out. They're amazing. I'm a music guy. I want new stuff and I want to turn people on stuff and I want people to read the book and every time they hear of a band, just go and play it. Mm. Even if it's a band you think you don't like, go and listen to it again because I've recontextualised some stuff in a way that you think, oh, I don't like them. But I've written about it in a way that made me think, Wait a minute, that's a different. I never thought of that. And listen to it again; it may turn you on to it. So my final victory of doing the book would be if the, if people got in some some of these bands, especially the more obscure ones. Because I mean, we all know about the Cure, we all know about Nick Cave and Susie. They're all icons and they're all brilliant. But there's a whole raft of people didn't get through underneath that. Who who when you listen to their music thirty, forty years later, you think, how come that never got through? That mm, was really mm. good, you know. Because it's not always the best people to get through music. Sometimes the best people, the bands implode. Sex it's a combination of talent and blind luck, isn't it? I think so. And timing as well, yeah. you know, and, and determination. Or maybe you work, you're just not enough of a hustler to get through. You have to be very determined to get out, especially out of those small towns, you know. I recently read a very touching piece by Leila Taylor describing the sort of double othering that she suffered as a black goth. What do you say to the occasional accusation that goth is a sort of whites-only scene? It was never meant to be. This is the frustration with a lot mm. of punk as well. They weren't meant to be. It's very white in the end. Mm. The, most people in there were white, but it wasn't meant to be. It wasn't exclusive. It wasn't, say, it wasn't like if black people or Asian. Actually, there's quite a few Asians on the scene. But, you know, if they went to a club, it wasn't people say, no, sorry, you can't yeah, come yeah. in. It was never like that. You know, but it was understood that the, the people that, a lot of black kids and a lot of Asian kids, a lot of Chinese kids, yeah. like different culture, you know. They had their own spaces to go to. 
but it was never meant to be exclusive. You know, there was mm. initially in the very, very early punk scene, there were a few black faces and they seemed to disappear pretty quick. In the goth scene, there was actually a few more that is dotted around. There's even a couple of black members in the bands. And there's quite a few Asian kids on the scene, especially um, one band where there's quite a few Asian, had quite a few Asian followers was Southern Death Cult, because their drummer Aki was a Pakistani kid from mm. Bradford. Mm. And he was kind of the manager of the band. And so a lot of Asian kids will latch on to that. And I know this day when I go around and do readings, some of these the guys turn up in their sixties now and they talk about how powerful that was, you know, and to see yeah. you know what to see what, what one of their guys up there playing in a in a rock band. At that time a lot of those kids weren't really into, into that kind of culture. It was a very different kind of scene. But it was never meant to be exclusive. But interestingly, goth was actually influenced by a lot of black music. So it's not a white music, you know. You can hear disco, dub, funk. It's all the way through because mm, it's all mm. about the dance floor. It's all about the sense of space. It wasn't like traditional rock music where you fill everything in and you have loads of wrist and guitar solos. It was it was more, a lot of electronic was mixed into it, but also that funk thing, a lot of funk. Disco was so key because in, in the golf clubs, because it's dance floor, you have to be able to dance. And the power of dub, you know, the, the space of dub and things, it's all in there. Everybody loved all that music and everyone loved all those cultures mm, mm. as well. Judd, I know many people understand the scene more deeply and are committed to it for life. So I don't mean to make light of that segment of it. But we have to acknowledge that for many millions more, like me, goth is a phase, right? And usually a phase that occurs in their teenage years. Why is that, do you think? Why is that it's sweet spot for connecting with people. I think uh, when when you're a teenager, things are powerful, aren't they? We're just I mean, like I talked about before, that moment where you know you have that time, don't you, to actually immerse yourself completely into a culture. You're trying to understand the world. You're trying to work it out. And a lot of the time, especially back in that period, music and culture is a brilliant way of seeing the world, wasn't it? understanding the world. You know, you know, a lot of these bands would be singing about sex and death and big themes and stuff like that. And you're trying to work as a teenager. That was your crash course, wasn't mm, it? Mm. Le learning about the everything, wasn't it? And so that was important. Some then some people sort of drift into like normal life, don't they? You know, and that's okay. I, I don't, you know, what people do is what what, what they want to do. But if people want to stay in and watch, I don't know, Strictly Come Dancing on TV, that's their thing, fair enough. It's not my thing, I'm not interested in that at all. So there are there are a certain percentage of people who don't really want to spend their whole lives watching telly. They still want to... Some people like the belonging of the culture, the tribal nature mm. of it, and some people also like the quest, you know, where this thing's ongoing, it's going somewhere else, where's the next bit, you know, and it's uh, it's a quest for experience. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's more extreme than than reality, normal life. Let me ask you one last question to just bring it to the today. You write a lot in the book about how much darker times are now, how much more apocalyptic the news, be it from an event or a political or an environmental angle, everything is on fire, it feels like. So let me ask you this. Goth felt to me like a resistance to the sort of blindingly neon bubblegum positivity and shoulder pads and, you know, the 80s and 90s and this idea that, uh, you know, everything can be jolly and we can all be rich. It, it sort of added balance to that. In these dark times where everything is bleak and teenagers are either starving or harming themselves, is extra darkness needed? Is it desirable? Is it... Does it serve that same purpose? 
you could you cannot create culture darker than the way the people run this planet run it. Yeah. So, <laughs> but my, one little joke that always comes up, and I'm when I'm talking about this book on tour. You go, well, you know, part of the darkness of the time is that the Tories are in, the worst Tory government ever, and the world was on the brink of a nuclear apocalypse. Good job those days are over. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> we seem to be in this eternal groove, don't we, where, where you know, the world is run by psychopaths, isn't it? And, and you know, no matter how dark you can make your culture, you cannot match their mindsets at all. And also it's attractive as well. There's an attraction to the dark side. You, I mean, some people do go in the deep end and wallow in it. It doesn't do them any good. Mm. But for most people, there's a fascination in there. I mean, there's a fascination before goth. I mean, like when you were kids, you would read the darkest thing you could find, couldn't you? It's, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, but it didn't mean you you wallowed in it. You know, you you still have, again. It's that idea you can you can hold two completely opposing ideas at the same time in your head. You can hold hundreds. We are a lot of different people all the time, aren't we? You know, and it's and it is interesting. It's fascinating. People watch horror films, but it doesn't mean they live in a horror film, does it? You know, it's it's just something really fascinating about it, isn't it? John Robb, thank you so much for such a great conversation. Thank you. No, thanks. Great questions. The Out of Darkness, The History of Goth is out now. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day. So if you like our work, you can and should support our work for as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. Let me leave you with a beautifully expressed sentiment by director John Hughes. I always preferred to hang out with the outcasts. They were cooler. They were smarter, they dressed better, and they had better taste in music, for sure. I guess when you lack social interaction, you have more time to develop these things. This is Alexandreo in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alexandreo. The producer was Liam Tate, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music from the Artless Music Library and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.